You are listening to the Grace Covenant Cornelius Podcast. Great to be back with you after being gone for a week. And as uh, we're back, as I'm back, we're jumping into a new series this morning. So if you have your Bibles, look with me to the book of Ephesians. And kind of halfway through the uh, New Testament, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's one for you there in the pew. Most of the scripture we'll have on the screen as well. But as we looked at the book of Ephesians, out of uh, all the books that the Apostle Paul wrote, about 12, I think, uh, this is maybe one of, my, one of my favorites. I love the book of Ephesians. It's inspiring, yet challenging. It's uh, encouraging, yet directional. It's, it's great theology, um, but very practical as to how we live out, live out the faith. This letter... Um, that the Apostle Paul wrote, he actually wrote it while he was in prison. How many of you know if you're in prison, you have some extra time on your hands? <laughs> Paul in prison uh, it pens this letter to the believers in Ephesus. So Paul went to Ephesus and was there for two years and pioneered a church um, and discipled, raised up leaders. And the city of Ephesus, if you were to study, uh, study do some study in the history, the city of Ephesus was a, a wealthy city. Um, prominently positioned, but it was also a city where there was a lot of idolatry. And Paul comes in, preaches the gospel, establishes a church, raises up leaders, and then, um, after two years, he goes on a missionary adventure, planting other churches, finds himself in prison. So ten years later, ten years later, he's penning this letter back to the believers at Ephesus to encourage them in their faith journey, to remind them of who they are in Christ, and to challenge them as to how knowing Jesus Christ should impact how they live their lives, how they walk out the faith. And the book of Ephesians is, is packed with like encouraging truths as to who we are in Christ and, and the great provision we have because of the mercy and grace of God. As I said, it's really practical truth. Um, and we can put to work in our daily life. Now this book, this letter that Paul wrote, obviously Paul didn't write this as six chapters in a letter. You understand that, right? He didn't say, you know, here's chapter one of the letter. Now, he wrote a letter to the believers, which scholars have since then broken down into six chapters. So there's six chapters. And here's, here's the, uh, the bottom line. It takes about 25 minutes to read the book of Ephesians. So in one setting, 25 minutes, you can read all six chapters. So what I would encourage you to do this coming week, a couple times, just sit down and read the book of Ephesians. And read it, and then reread it. In my preparation for this series, I've been knowing, I've been teaching through Ephesians since January. So I've probably read through the book of Ephesians, I'm going to say 50 times. I'm just reading it, and rereading it, and rereading it. Like I I say, I like like for God's word to kind of seep down into my soul. And so I've just been reading and rereading. So I would encourage you, you don't have to read it 50 times before next Sunday. Um, I mean, you could if you wanted, uh, but you don't have to, just a couple times, just so that you're familiar with the truths that we're going to be walking through, talking about. And beyond that, our communications department's done a phenomenal job putting together a little devotional guide. So there in your worship guide, there's uh, a booklet. And so the devotion is connected to the message to help you go deeper during the week. So hopefully it's a tool that you'll be able to utilize as we work our way. We're going to spend six weeks in uh, this letter that Paul wrote to the believers at Ephesus. But as he, as he begins this letter, 
It's like he explodes words on the, the words on the page as to God's great provision for our lives. Now, you'll not see this in your text, but if you were to go to the original Greek text, verse 3 to verse 14 is one sentence. Paul never stops with any punctuation as to a period. It's like he is so excited, he's so passionate. It's like he's exploding with words as to the wonder of God's work, God's provision for our lives. He begins to talk about who we are and what God's provided for us. You know, if we don't know, if we don't know who we are as believers, and if we don't know what God's provided for us, then here, here's the challenge. We'll, we'll settle for less than what God intended. We'll settle for less than God's good plan for our lives if we don't know. So Paul spends about three chapters. The first three chapters is really about God's work on our behalf. You know, oftentimes, oftentimes I think as believers, we live like paupers when we're really kids of the king. Think about that. Or let me say it another way. We live and we settle for far less than what God's provided for us as his children. In fact, I came across a story, true story, of a lady who's gone down in history as America's greatest miser Yet when she died, Hetty Green left behind an estate. When she died in 1916, she left behind an estate that was valued at over a hundred million dollars. That's 1916. I mean, it would be worth 200 million in today's currency. 1916 it was worth a hundred million dollars. Yet Hetty Green was so frugal, so tight with her money, though she had abundant wealth and abundant resource. She never enjoyed it. Matter of fact, as the story is told, and you can look this up um, online. I, I just Googled Hetty Green and found all this information. She was so tight with her money that she never used heat in her home and she never used hot water because it would cost money. Um, it's told that she wore one black dress all the time. And this is even an unpleasant thought, but it's what it said in her story in the history of her life. She wore the same undergarments all the time, never changing them until they wore out because she was too cheap to do her laundry. Even her son, her son had an illness and something wrong with his leg. And she spent so much time seeking out a free medical clinic that eventually her son, her own son, had to have his leg amputated because she didn't get the care that he, the medical care that he needed. Crazy, eccentric. I mean, I mean, you wouldn't even think that, that someone would, would live in, in such a way when they had such resource, such wealth. And as I was reading Hetty Green's story, I thought, you know, there's a similarity, there's a parallel oftentimes to us as Christ followers. And that we have great spiritual riches available to us. But oftentimes we never take advantage of it. A great resource. Again, but we live oftentimes like paupers, even though God has blessed us with so much, with such abundance. So the Apostle Paul begins his letter here, clearly revealing what God's provided for us. He, he clearly defines that of God's good work on our behalf, and he wants us to know and embrace the inheritance that's rightfully ours, what's been provided for us. You know, oftentimes... We jump to what we should be doing as Christ followers. We talk a lot about doing, performing. You know, this is what you should be doing. And oftentimes we talk about doing before we talk about being. 
We talk about what we should be doing rather than what God has done for us. And often I believe we get the cart before the horse. We first need to understand what God has done for us. To understand who we are in Christ and that the work then would flow out of it. Does that make sense? So looking there to your notes this morning. Through the provision of Jesus Christ, God has redeemed and restored us so that we might thrive and honor God with our lives. Not only do we have our past forgiven, but we've been provided everything we need to live victoriously in the present. It's been provided for us in Christ. And we're going to discover that as we work our way through the book of Ephesians. But as we look to the book of Ephesians, it's really divided into two parts. Six chapters that are really broken down into two themes. First, we have that of how we are redeemed by God. That's the first section. The second section is then how the redeemed should live. So in the, in the first part, we have God's work. In the second part, we have our walk. That's why we've titled this series as such. God's work and then how we, how we walk that out. The first three chapters, Paul addresses all that God's provided for us. He, he clearly defines God's action on our behalf. And then the second half of the letter, he challenges us as to how we should live as Christ was, how we should walk this out. If you can think of it like this, it's, it's privilege and responsibility. How many of you know, as Christ follows, we have great privilege? How many of you are grateful for God's mercy this morning and God's grace and God's goodness, and God's provision. Listen, that's the privilege, that's the privilege that we enjoy. Listen, you didn't, you didn't earn it, you didn't work for it. No, it's God's gift. It's the privilege we have, but with privilege comes responsibility. Okay, then we should honor God in our lives and with our lives. There's an expectation. Privilege, responsibility. It's kind of like, in our home, and if you have children, or if you've raised children, you'll probably identify with this. In our home, we have, uh, well, they're 17 and 19 now. Uh, our children in our home, they had privilege and responsibility. In our home, as we were raising our kids, this will probably amaze you, but we never charged our kids for the food they ate. <laughs> and you're probably thinking, well, Pastor, you are so generous. I, I am. Didn't charge them. Every meal, every meal was free. They didn't come to the table and like get a bill after the meal. It was free. The room that they slept in, the bed that they slept on, the roof that was over their head, it was all free. It didn't cost them anything. Clothes that they wear, the articles that they purchased and that we're still purchasing, I'm sad to say. All free. We didn't charge them for that. It's the privilege of being a part of the Lemmings family. One of these days when I kick the bucket, they're going to get the inheritance. Whatever it is that I've, that I've gathered, that I, that I own, it's going to become theirs. Why? And it's the privilege of being a part of the Lemmings family. But with that privilege also comes responsibility. Around the house, they had chores. And get this, we didn't pay them. It was not an allowance for the chores. No, it's responsibility. It's a part of being a part of the Lemmings family. So there's privilege and responsibility. So it is in our relationship with Christ. We've been richly blessed, friends. Richly blessed. So much more. So much more than we ever deserve. It's the privilege. And then also there comes the responsibility. God's work 
in our walk. And we want to begin this morning, chapter 1, and we want to talk about God's work on our behalf. So if you have your scripture, look with me, if you would, to verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3, it's on the screen as well. Paul's word to the believers at Ephesus, and I believe, inspired by the Holy Spirit for us today here at Grace Covenant. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us and the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth, together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Well, Paul covered a lot in these verses as he's trying to communicate all that we have and all that we are in Christ. And one of the funniest cartoon strips I ever, I ever saw showed a, a pompous lawyer reading a last will of a client um, to some greedy family members. So kind of get that picture in your mind. Lawyer reading will. Here's greedy family members waiting to see what they're going to get. And the caption underneath read like this. I, John Jones, being of sound mind and body, spent it all. But when Jesus Christ wrote his last will and testament for his church, he made it possible for us to share in his spiritual riches. Jesus, instead of spending it all, Jesus Christ paid it all. His death on the cross and his resurrection make possible our salvation. He wrote us into his will and then he died so that the will would be enforced. And then he rose again that he might be a heavenly advocate to make sure that the terms of the will were currently followed. So today, today, our position as Christ followers is this. We are in Christ. That is a significant phrase. Matter of fact, in the book of Ephesians, Paul uses the phrase in Christ 36 different times. How many of you think he's trying to communicate something to us? 36 different times in six chapters, you find this phrase, in Christ. 
It's not just that Christ is in you more significant. And what Paul wants us to catch is that we are, we are in Christ. That our lives are rooted and established in Him. See, if we only emphasize that Christ is in us, and oftentimes that's what we say. If someone receives Christ as their Savior, they make that decision and say, hey, you know, you've, Christ is in you. And that's true. Theologically, that would be accurate. However, it's not as significant for us as that of the reality that we are in Christ. See, if we only emphasize that Christ is in us, we define and limit Christ to our reality. If we realize that we are in Christ, then he determines our reality and he encompasses all that we are. So as we are in Christ, that means that all that Jesus Christ is and all that he has becomes available to us. Pretty amazing. Being in Christ is greater than Christ being in you. Let me say that again. You, being in Christ, theologically speaking, is greater than Christ being in you. Uh, We have a hard time understanding that, so let me see if I can illustrate it to you this morning in, in this way. Let's say that I'm out on Lake Norman, and I'm being pulled on a tube behind a boat. And um, there's a wild and crazy guy who's driving the boat, and they want to get me off of the tube. You ever had one of those experiences? Like, you, Pastor, you're coming off, right? And so I'm on the tube. They're pulling me around on Lake Norman. And finally, I'm, you know, I'm holding on for dear life. Finally, because I think there's sharks in Lake Norman. <laughs> well, I'm holding on for dear life. Finally, they flip me over. I come off the tube. In the midst of the adventure... My mouth was open, and I took in a big drink of Lake Norman. How many of you know, at that point, we could accurately say, I have Lake Norman in me. (laughs) Right? Are you following what I'm saying? Why? Because I just took a drink of Lake Norman. I have Lake Norman in me. However, how many of you know the Lake Norman that I'm in is greater than the Lake Norman that's in me? You following me? Well, I just got, you know, maybe a couple ounces of Lake Norman in me. But the Lake Norman that I'm in is millions, billions of gallons of water. The vastness of the lake. So in the same way, we are, Paul wants us to get this. Our position today is what? We are in Christ, meaning that the fullness of all that Christ is, is available for us to take advantage of on a daily basis. That's why I would say oftentimes we live like paupers, spiritually speaking, when we're kids of the king. Why? Because our position is in Christ. We're living in Christ, enjoying that of the fullness of Christ in every area of our lives. Beyond being in Christ, Paul clearly identifies three specific works of God in our lives that, sh- that shapes our identity, who we are. So let me just kind of walk you through this text. Three works of God on our behalf. The first is this. We are chosen by the Father. The good news was chosen. And if you look back to verse 4, the scripture says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. So before you ever chose God, God chose you. Before you were ever in the mind of your parents, you were on God's mind and on his heart. Scripture says before the foundation of the earth, 
He chose you. He chose you to be a part of his family. He chose you because he wanted you. Isn't that not an encouraging truth? That God the Father wanted you, the creator of the universe wanted you to be a part of his family, so he handpicked you. Listen, it's not by chance that you are a follower of Christ. Well, I just stumbled onto it. No, you didn't stumble onto it. God chose you. By the way, he's chosen every human being. It's just not that every human being's chosen him. Second Peter uh, three nine says that it's not the will of the Father. Excuse me, First Peter three nine says it's not the will of the Father that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. All been called. It's not all that have responded. Here's the good news in this salvation process. Again, before you ever chose God, God chose you. Again, because He wanted you. He wanted, to, he wanted you to experience His love, His grace, His provision. He wanted you to experience that of His work in your life. So He chose you. I don't know if all of you would be able to relate to this story, but I remember some pretty painful days in elementary school and middle school. How I many of you know middle school can be tough? Can you remember back that far? Some of you may be challenged to remember, but I remember middle school. Late elementary, fourth grade, fifth grade, on up into middle school. I was not, I was not the talented child when it came to sports. Loved to play sports, I just wasn't any good at it. Um, and maybe you'll remember the days when recess would happen, and you'd go out on the playground, and what would happen? And we were going to play either football or basketball. It was the two sports that you know, we'd play. And so before you could play the game, what would you do? You've got to choose sides, right? You've got to pick teams. And maybe some of you in the room today were the jocks who were always picked first. But I was always picked last. You know, you know I, I, I would always, I remember just looking at the ground. I didn't want to make eye contact with anyone, hoping that someone would pick me. It was always like, well, I was the last one. Well, I, guess, I guess we'll take Farrell. I mean, everybody has to play, right? <laughs> it was kind of that deal. And, uh, yeah, it was, those are not pleasant experiences. If, if you were like me and you were tendency to be picked last, and when I read this, I've been handpicked by the Father to be a part of his family, that he wanted me on his team. And he saw the value in my life, and he says, hey, I want Pharaoh. I'm choosing him to be a part. So you've been, you've been chosen by the Father, not by accident, but on purpose. Encourage your neighbor this morning. Turn to your neighbor and say, hey, you've been chosen by the Father. But it doesn't stop there. Not only have you been chosen by the Father, we are, we are redeemed by the Son. Verse 7, the Scripture says, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. This word redeem is an interesting word. It literally means to purchase by, pray, by paying a price. To redeem something. To buy something in Paul's day, when he wrote this letter, they would have been approximately six million slaves in the Roman Empire. They had a lot of slaves. And oftentimes they would be sold on the auction block like a piece of furniture, sad to say. But it was reality in that day and that time. But if an individual chose to, they could go down to the auction block 
They could bid on an individual being sold as a slave, and they could, play, they could pay the redemption price and buy that individual out of slavery to give them a new lease on life. What did they do? They paid the redemption price to set someone free. In the same way, Jesus Christ paid the redemption price that you and I might be set free. You might be thinking this morning, well, I'm not a slave, never been a slave. Listen, you were a slave. You were a slave to your past. You were a slave to sin. You were a slave to that of your sinful nature. And here's the reality. You couldn't set yourself free. You couldn't rescue yourself. What did you need? You needed someone to act on your behalf. You needed someone to pay the redemption price. And Jesus Christ paid the price by his death on the cross. The the price that was paid was the blood of Jesus that was shed. Not because the soldiers forced his death, but because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, freely gave his life. That we might be redeemed, that we might be purchased out of slavery, that we might experience today that of forgiveness. Peter, in his writings, captures this, and he states it so well. First Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So Jesus Christ has redeemed us. He set us free so that we might live out the fullness of God's plan for our lives. Again, we couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't, we couldn't rescue ourselves. So Jesus came to make the way of salvation possible, to make the way of forgiveness possible. How? By giving his life. We've been chosen by the Father. We're redeemed by the Son. And we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's the third work of God on our behalf. And notice, interesting, the work of the Godhead, the work of the Godhead working in, working um, together to bring about salvation for mankind. So we're chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son. And then Paul says, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Let, let's look back to verse 13 and 14. I want us to read this one more time. It's on this screen. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, notice you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance unto the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So again, we have the full Godhead at work in our salvation process, chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son. Sealed by the Holy Spirit. See, at the moment, at the moment that you open your life to Jesus Christ, when you believed and received, there was a miracle that happened in your life. And here's the miracle. The Holy Spirit indwelt you. The third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, came to you and now he resides in you. So here's the miracle of it. Listen, 24-7. Wherever you go, wherever you're at, as a Christ follower, you have God with you and the Holy Spirit who resides in you. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. He says that, that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit resides in you. So you've been sealed. 
You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit fulfills a lot of different roles in our lives. He empowers. We talk a lot, a lot about the power of the Spirit. He guides. He corrects. He directs. But we don't, we don't talk much about the sealing. What does it mean? What does it mean? It's an interesting concept. What does it mean when Paul says we've been sealed as a believer? We've been sealed by the Spirit. I, I think this is a significant work of the Spirit in our life. And I think it... And there's at least three things that this means for us as believers. The first is this. The sealing of the Holy Spirit is, is the symbol of a, of a finished transaction. A finished transaction. I mean, even today, when important legal documents are processed, if you were to go to the law office and, and get some legal work done, if you're buying a house and you close on a house, oftentimes, as those documents are processed, they're stamped with an official seal to signify what the completion of a transaction And so it is for us. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's a finished transaction. Listen, you didn't get partially saved last Sunday, and you're going to get the rest of the way saved this Sunday. You didn't get almost saved, and so now you've got to get completely saved. No, when you accepted Christ as your Savior, get this, you were 100% completely saved. It's a finished transaction. Finished through the provision of the cross. So I don't have to get more saved. No, I'm completely saved and I've been sealed. There's the seal of the Holy Spirit saying, it's a finished transaction. Not only, I I believe that the sealing of the Holy Spirit speaks of ownership. It's this statement, we belong to God. It's a mark of, of authenticity. God put his seal upon us because he purchased us to be his own. You know, out west... Out west, um, years ago, I guess even still today, ranchers who have a lot of cattle and they have some free open range concept oftentimes would take their cattle and they would brand them. Are you familiar with that concept? They would place a seal, a brand on a calf, on a cow to, uh, to symbolize or to make the statement what it was a statement of ownership. So if that cow or that calf went wandering off and got into a herd of another cattle, uh, they could like quickly identify who, which one belonged to who. Why? Because they had been sealed, right? It was, it was a, the branding was a statement of ownership. Same way, I believe the sealing of the Holy Spirit is significant because it's the statement of what we belong to God. We're His children. Not only is it a statement of ownership, I believe the seeing of the Holy Spirit also brings security and protection for our lives. And that we have the Holy Spirit 24-7 in our lives, guarding us, guiding us, working for our good. So again, wherever you go, praise God, as you're driving down Interstate 77, well, you've got the Holy Spirit with you, right? Isn't that good news? That we have, we have the Holy Spirit guiding and protecting. That's the seal. Now, interesting, if you were to look to Matthew 28, you don't have to turn there, but let me tell you what you'll find. In Matthew 28, after Jesus was crucified, placed in the tomb, 
The scripture says that the religious leaders came to Pilate and they were concerned. Maybe you'll remember this. They were concerned. They said, you know, that crazy man Jesus said in the third day he's going to rise again. He said, Pilate, what we're concerned about is we think his disciples may try this little cover-up scheme of trying to steal his body. We don't want that to happen. If that story were to get out, whoa, it would be just be horrible. So we would like Pilate, we would like Pilate for you to make the tomb secure. And if you read that passage of the scripture, the scripture says that Pilate said, make the tomb as secure as you know. How many of you know they couldn't keep Jesus in the grave? Didn't matter what they did, but they were going to, he said, make the tomb as secure as you know. And so, and this is what they did. They sent out, um, a legion of soldiers to guard the tomb. And the scripture also says they sealed the tomb to make it secure. Interesting. But the Holy Spirit seals us. It's a statement of that, of the security we have, and that of the provision and the protection of God in our lives. The good news is we have help in the present through the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't stop there. It gets even better. The King James Version says, if you have that version, it says the Holy Spirit is given as an earnest of our inheritance. The NIV says he's given as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Interesting, if you were to buy a piece of property in the, in the establishing of a contract, one of the things you have to do is put down earnest money, right? Often it's called good faith money. It's earnest money as to this is the this is the down payment on what I'm committed to completing. This is the down payment. This is the beginning of the establishing of a transaction that I'm committed to completing. Earnest. Scripture says the Holy Spirit is the earnest. It's the it's the it's God's good faith promise that one day what He's established in our lives will come to full fruition. And that we will spend eternity with Him in glory. So the Holy Spirit is that deposit in our lives of the promise of the greater that's to come. Isn't that exciting? God's good work in our lives and on our behalf. So here's the good news today. Your identity doesn't depend on something you do or have done. No, it's not, listen, it's not about your identity is not connected to how you perform. How good you've been or how bad you've been. How many of you know if our identity was, was based on how good we could be, we'd all be in trouble? Right? It's not based on what you can do, what you have done or what you might do. Your identity is based on who God is and His work in your life. Your identity is who God says you are and it's provided through that of the provision of Christ. So as a believer... I encourage you today with the truth that you've been chosen by the Father. Listen, He wanted you. He wanted you to be a part of His family. You've been redeemed by the Son. Jesus paid the price for your freedom. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And you have the Holy Spirit residing in you, working for your good. Folks, that's the good news of God's work on your behalf. So may you confidently... Walk out the faith knowing that your position is this. Where are you? You are in Christ. Meaning this, that all that Christ is, all that he has is available for you. That's why Paul says in in verse 3, he says, Every spiritual blessing has been made available. Past tense, taken care of, already done, provided for you. So may we not settle for less. 
when God's destined us for so much more. May we not live as paupers when we're truly kids of the King. Amen? Lord, we thank you this morning for your work on our behalf. God, we thank you that you didn't say to us, hey, get yourself cleaned up, fixed up, and then we can talk about it. No, God, you came to us in the mess of our lives. Not because we deserved it, but because of the wonder of your mercy and your grace. Because of your great love, God, you chose us. Before we were ever conceived, before we were ever born, you saw us and you said, I I choose Sam and Sally and, and Bill and Cheryl. Because you chose us because of your great love. For that, we're grateful. And you've, you've placed us in Christ. You've made available to us unbelievable spiritual riches. So, Lord, my prayer today for every individual here, God, may we truly know who we are in you. And may we confidently live out that identity. May we confidently live every day knowing that we are in Christ, meaning all that Christ is and all that Christ has is available to us. God, may we not settle for less when you've destined us for so much more. But may these truths, may these truths that Paul's established here in the first few verses, may it be that that energizes us and gives us confidence on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday as we're living out our faith life. And we're grateful for your provision for our lives today. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.